read chapter 10 and then go all the way through verse 1 of chapter 11 as well. It's funny, it seems like we had a couple of uh, new families over here last week, but after the sermon last week, they didn't want to come back. I don't know why. No idea. Just wait till next week. Whew. We're going to have about 50, 60 verses next week of all sorts of fun stuff. Um, but I think this week will make much more sense to you, I'm hoping. Uh, you may still disagree with me, that's normal, but, uh, but at least it will somewhat make sense. Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true. And it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat, or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked. And behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Ephaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone, and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sounds of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees, and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips, then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now, no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except against these, except Michael your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that uh, you would give us insight into this same word that you gave to Daniel, that we would understand, that we who are beloved of God would grasp these eternal truths, these spiritual truths. We pray as well that you would give us insight into what is going on uh, within the spiritual realm as we continue to have conflict in this world and conflict in our daily lives. We pray that you would strengthen us by this word, encourage your people, uh, give us faith to, to look to what is unseen as we walk by faith in this fallen world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Had a blast from the past this week. Uh, I went back and read the book, This Present Darkness. Some of you are probably familiar with that. Uh, book that came out in the 80s, I think. Uh, 
It was one of the first Christian books I ever read. I was still a teenager at the time, had just come to faith in Christ, and I was utterly fascinated by it. And for the sake of the sermon, I figured I might, might as well go back and, and look at this text because there are some commonalities between the two for sure. It's a fictional story uh, that Frank Peretti wrote uh, in, back in the 80s that takes place in the college town of Ashton in small town America. We never told what state it's in or anything of that nature. But in a period of just a few years, all the important leaders of the town disappeared. Not from some secret rapture or anything like that, but somehow they're either getting sick and they can't do the jobs anymore, or they move away for some reason, or they just die. And in that same period of time, there are others who move in to take their places, to replace the pastors, the college professors, the administrators, the judges, the politicians, etc. And as a result, most of the men and women who are now taking these new positions are all somehow related. They're members of what's called the Universal Consciousness Society which is related to the New Age movement. And uh, seemingly, according to the story, is orchestrated, if you will, by the horde of demons behind them. Uh, and so each one of these new people in town, except for a, a select few, are, have, have been taken possession, if you will, by demons, right? Now, one new pastor comes into town who does not, is not related to this, and we also have one editor-in-chief of a, of a newspaper who also is not related to this, and they begin to question what's going on in the town. And as a result, you could say all hell breaks loose on the spiritual plane. Immediately, uh, we're opened up to seeing how angels and demons are fighting one another for the sake of this town. Of course, the whole book highlights the importance of prayer in the midst of this battle. So you can see some commonalities between this text and that one. In fact, I'm sure he's used... Uh, the, the author used this text as one of his reference points. It's an easy read, and, and he does reference Scripture from time to time, encouraging the saints to pray in the Spirit at all times. But anyone who's reading it must remember it is a work of fiction. It's a dramatization of uh, spiritual battles, if you will. And so he does take artistic license at times to explain that. Uh, but you also have to understand the person who's writing it also used to be a pastor in the Assemblies of God background. So... His theology is going to be quite different than perhaps what you would get from this pulpit. For instance, his emphasis on uh, what, what's called spiritual mapping and uh, identifying territorial spirits in particular regions of the world so you can call out demons by name in order to bind them. That's not something that I think is taught in Scripture at all, but something that's uh, added to Scripture by some people of that movement. Likewise, the author states over and over again in his novel, that the angels are helpless to overcome the demons unless God's people are praying. Making it seem as if angels are weak and that men are strong, if you will. As long as we're praying for the angels, then they'll get stronger and they'll be able to overcome the demon. In fact, the author even states that sometimes God's will is thwarted by the fact that his people aren't praying enough. And I thought, oh my, that's kind of radical. Basically what he's saying is something related to a dualism rather than a Christian theism, that there's a, an equal and opposite evil force against God, and if we're not doing our part, this force is going to overcome God's strength and, and will. Additionally, like most, most other Christian fiction stories today, whether in the movies or whether in books, I personally have a, a, a beef with the fact that almost all of these stories always end with good triumphing over evil in every way. At the end of the story, all the angels are flying away from the town and there are no more demons left anywhere in this small town of Ashton. I just think in a fallen world, that's just not the case, guys. Uh, I don't think there's a single town on earth where there's no demons still hanging out. Still bothering people, still pestering families, still getting involved in, in our lives, whether or not we recognize their presence. Nevertheless, having critiqued him like I critiqued so many other things. Um, I would say he does a good job of bringing the reality of the spiritual realm, uh, especially to Americans who really have not given much thought to that at all, and also given a great encouragement to, to God's people to pray. And so because these are interlapping ideas in uh, chapter 10 of Daniel, I wanted to um, focus on that this morning. So let me give you a little bit of background to Daniel chapter 10 to, to get us into this particular passage. If you look at verse 1 of our text, Daniel says this is another vision that he receives. In fact, it's the last vision that we have in the book of Daniel. What you have to understand is 
Chapters 10 through 12 are actually one unit. Uh, he's just beginning to introduce the vision in this chapter, but then gives us much of the content of the vision in the next two chapters. Primarily, the, the chapter 11 gives a lot of the information. In fact, I'm telling you, you're going to be overwhelmed by it in advance. So be prepared. It's a lot of download of information tomorrow, next week. But in the meantime, you could call this chapter sort of the preface, if you will, to the vision, in which basically Daniel's describing the circumstances in which the vision is given. So in verse 1, we're told that this vision was given in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. The third year. So if you go back to the previous chapter, we know this is about two to three years after the previous uh, uh, vision that he received. So it's around 536 B.C. And in verse 4, this time we're told specifically which day it occurs on. And we're told that it's the 24th day of the first month of the year. The significance of that, we'll talk about that in a minute. But if you look to verses 2 and 3, Daniel shares there what he was doing at the time that the vision was given to him. He says that he had been mourning and fasting for three weeks after the turn of the new year. So this is the first month of the year, it's the, the new year, and he's mourning and fasting. Now why is this significant? Why that he's fasting at this time? Here's what we know. It's about three years after the famous Edict of Cyrus that allows God's people to return to their homeland to rebuild the temple. Right? We know that that should be good news. We should be praising God this time. Instead, Daniel's mourning. Why is he mourning? In part, it could be because he realizes so few people have actually returned to take part in this. We find out, again, Ezra Nehemiah gives us quite a bit of background information to help us understand what we're reading here in Daniel. But in Ezra chapter 2, verse 64, we find out that of the hundreds of thousands of Jews living in Babylon, and perhaps over a million throughout the rest of uh, the world at this time, only, only 42,000 Jews return home. That's a very paltry, pitiful number of people who want to come home and to help rebuild the temple. That, that alone could cause any uh, faithful Jew to weep, I would think. But, but in addition to that, we learn in chapter 4 of Ezra that immediately opposition began to arise against the Jews as they're rebuilding the temple. Uh, in fact, we learn uh, from history that corresponds with this that Cyrus had a son, his name was Achimbyses, who was filling uh, his role on the throne while Cyrus was away fighting in battles. And basically what happened was this man signed a counter decree, basically saying that the Jews needed to stop building the temple immediately because of their um, suspicious rebellion against the emperor, against the empire, if you will. And so everything that Cyrus had done, his son undoes, and as a result, Daniel is spending the first month of the new year mourning and fasting and praying uh, because of, of the news that he's heard. Now, what's interesting, though, is, is, again, this is the first month, and he's fasting and praying in the first month, which is kind of strange because the first month primarily is made up of two feasts. We have the Passover feast that takes place in the first month, and then we also have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, again, the holidays, according to the names themselves, are meant to be a time of what? Feasting. But here, Daniel's not feasting. Rather, he's fasting. And he's fasting because the whole purpose of celebrating those feasts is to celebrate what God has done in bringing his people out of bondage and into the promised land and giving them this new hope and giving them this, this home of their own. But now they don't have that, so they're mourning, and rightfully Daniel is mourning right alongside with them, mourning over the holy city of Zion, mourning for the people of God who are now suffering again. Now, even though Daniel is likely too old to have gone back with them, again, he's in his upper 80s at this point, likely, um, he can't really do anything uh, that the people that would have needed to, to build and to construct and, and to do all those things, so... He does the one thing he can do, and he enters into prayer alongside of them. Again, a very good thing for anyone uh, who gets to a certain stage of life and feels like, I can't do anything. Well, certainly Daniel knows what he can do and prays. 
And he's been praying, but in verse 12, we're told that the angel appears to him, has told him that he has come because Daniel had set his heart to understand, and the fact that he had humbled himself before the Lord. He wants to understand some of the visions that he's just received, because he thought that the visions, again, meant that somehow God's people were going to return home, and at least there was going to be some good news, but he's still confused by the visions. Now, this should encourage all of us, because we just went over the last four verses of the previous chapter last week. Raise your hand if you understood it all. Confused. Daniel himself was confused, and is still praying, asking God, help me to understand what this means. This is not easy stuff that we've been covering. So it should make us all feel better in that regard. But nevertheless, we find out that the scripture tells us that if we don't understand and we don't have knowledge, we don't have wisdom, what should we do? We should pray. And God will give wisdom to all those who ask. Right? That's what James chapter 1 verse 5 teaches us. But of course, none of us should expect an angel immediately to come to our side the minute we pray this prayer, right? I don't know about you, but when I've asked God for help in understanding the word of God, as far as I know, I haven't seen any angels that have come to minister to me to tell me a little bit more about what the Scripture says. But rather, we find in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is, is continually praying that God's people would understand. And he's praying that the Holy Spirit would immediately fill them to give them more understanding, to give them some more insight into what they're reading and how to apply it to their lives. So we're not expecting an angel to come to minister to us. But we certainly are expecting the Holy Spirit who already dwells within us to minister to us in that way. But in this particular case, we find that an angel does come and reveals more of God's will to Daniel in, in some way or another. And, and I say an angel, in verses 4 through 10, Daniel shares some of the details surrounding this interaction. If you look at verse 4, he says that he was standing on the bank of the Tigris River when all of a sudden he had a vision. Now this is a little bit different than every other vision he had before, because if you remember the previous visions, where was he? He was in bed. He was asleep. This time, it's not a dream. It's while he's wide awake that God gives him the vision. He's actually standing by a real river this time. Before, he saw himself standing by rivers in different places of the world, but now he's back in Babylon and he's awake, and he's actually with other people this time. But these other men don't see the vision, because as soon as they hear this really strange sound, they get scared, and they run away in fear. Daniel's left alone, and he sees this man clothed in linen, wearing a belt of gold. It says his body was like a barrel, or perhaps your translation says another type of jewel. It's a precious jewel, basically. His face is like lightning, his eyes are like flaming torches, his arms are like brownish, burnished bronze, and the sound of his voice is like a multitude of people talking. Now, we're not actually told what type of figure this is. Is this an angel? Is this Gabriel? Or is this even Christ? Those are two of the, the, the popular uh, choices for who this figure might be. And, and the reason for the latter suggestion, that it might be Jesus himself in pre-incarnate form, is because of the similarities that we find in the book of Revelation. There in the book of Revelation, John sees a similar vision, but this time it's Jesus, and he's depicted wearing a gold sash around his chest. Not a gold belt around his waist, but he also has legs like burnished bronze. In fact, his feet like burnished bronze instead of legs. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His voice sounds like the roaring of many waters. Now, it's not exactly the same, but it's similar, right? So some people have said, well, you know, perhaps this is Jesus. But then we also find in another vision that Ezekiel has in chapter 1 of his prophecy, in that case, he's seeing cherubim, not Jesus, but the cherubim are described as having legs of burnished bronze, having the appearance of a flaming torch or lightning. It says the wheels of their chariots are like the gleaming of barrels. It's the exact same word that's used here in the Hebrews is used in Daniel 6. It's the exact same jewel that Daniel sees, Ezekiel sees. And then he says the sound of their wings was like the sound of many waters. So again, it's this multitude of sounds of some kind. So based upon the similarity here, again, we can't determine whether it's Jesus or whether it's an angel because the, the, they both have very similar descriptions in terms of the imagery that these prophets are seeing to represent something of the glory and the holy of 
holiness of the angelic and the celestial realm, if you will. We can't determine based upon their description alone, but we, I think we can determine by the words that he speaks. If you look in verse 12 and 13, there the figure says to Daniel, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. But then he says in verse 13, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Now how does that help us determine his identity? Well, from what we know about Jesus in the New Testament, he is superior to every angel in every way. In fact, the angels are called his elect angels. He is the owner of them. He is their master. As you know, all angels are created beings. Christ is the creator of all things. Do you really think that Christ himself would need the help of an angel to fight against this so-called prince of Persia? It says he was left all alone with him and needed help from Michael. Um, let me put it this way. Even in Christ's humiliation, if you remember, when he is in his fleshly form, walking on earth, and takes on the weakness of man, even then, when he was brought into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, he never called upon the help of an angel to help him fight against the devil himself. We do know that afterwards, if you remember, the angels came and ministered to him, to him but do you know how they ministered to him? They gave him food. He was hungry. After he had already won the battle. But there was no reason for him to call upon an angel for any reason when he had to fight against the devil himself and won, mind you. So why would... Christ need the help of Michael in any way. I just don't think that's the case. Similarly, if you remember when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's the second time, or the last time, if you will, uh, that the devil is attacking him, this time in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he's about to go to the cross. And during that time, if you remember, the soldiers came and they tried to take Jesus by force. Peter takes up his sword and cuts off the ear of the one. And then Jesus, what does he say to Peter? He says, do you not realize that at any moment... I could call a whole legion of angels to come and help me if I so desired. But even then, has no desire to call upon angels to help him in any way. He doesn't need their help. Uh, and so I, I just don't see how this possibly could be the pre-incarnate Christ. Rather, to me, it has to be some kind of angel. Whether it's Gabriel, whether it's some other person, I just don't think it's, I don't think it's Christ at all. Uh, but this angel says he comes in response to Daniel's prayer because Daniel's trying to understand the purpose of God's people, their suffering, and how long they're meant to suffer for. He doesn't understand these visions. And so the angel comes to help him to understand a little bit more about what's to happen in the latter days. And as we read, the angel was sent out to help Daniel three weeks prior to the time he actually comes. For some reason, this prince of the kingdom of Persia hinders him until Michael comes to his aid. Now, technically, you'll notice in this text, Daniel never says that this, this angel is hindered by a demon. doesn't use the word demon here at all, right? Um, uh, nevertheless, we, we figure, uh, using our common sense and the logic that God has given to us, that if this is an angel who is coming to minister to Daniel, then only someone of equal power can hinder him from coming, right? So it has to be some other type of angelic being, right? Uh, but at the same time, what we understand is that uh, the angels tend to work together, right? They, they tend to be on the same side. So why would one angel hinder another angel? So again, using common sense, that's why most people, most commentators, most scholars have understood that he's referring to some fallen angel, some demon that's referred to here as the prince of Persia. And thus this angel gives Daniel a, a brief glimpse into the spiritual realm to help to see the conflict that's taking place behind the scenes. All Daniel has understood thus far is there's conflict on the ground, if you will. He sees that there are enemies to God's people that are constantly trying to thwart their plans, trying to stop them from building the temple. But now he's being told that there's some sort of cosmic, demonic power that's also at work within the Persian palace itself. So in other words, the son of Cyrus, who has signed this decree, 
somehow there's some sort of demonic influence here that has worked to make this happen. All right? That's kind of scary to think about it. And you can tell that Daniel himself is overwhelmed by this information. He's uh, frightened by it as well. And it's interesting, right, after Daniel uh, tells him things, and now I'm going to go back and fight this prince again. And then after him, I'm going to go and fight against the prince of Greece. So some other figure. And why, is, why these two particular ones? Because those are the ones that are in power now and the ones that will be in power afterwards. There are some sort of demonic figures that are purposely trying to stamp out the work of God and even stamp out the people of God. This is something that he is revealing to Daniel in this vision. But notice, not once does the, Daniel, does, does the angel ever encourage to Daniel to pray for him, that he would have the strength to fight against demons. Okay? Not once does the angel need his help in any way to do his work. In fact, it's the other way around. The angel has come to minister to Daniel because of his weakness. Over and over again in this text, it makes that emphatically clear that Daniel's the weak one and the angel's strong. In fact, if you just look through it, verse, verse 8, for instance. When Daniel first sees the angel, he shares with him, there's no strength left in me. I retain no strength. Nothing. Right? Verse 9, when he hears the angel's words, he falls on his face as in a deep sleep. He's scared. He's weak. Verse 10, the angel touches him. He's still trembling on his hands and knees, even as the angel's trying to help him. Verse 11, he stands at the angel's command, yet he's still trembling. Verse 15, when the angel speaks to him, Daniel immediately turns his face to the ground in fear, and he's stricken mute. He can't say a word. Only after the angel touches him, a second time he's able to speak, but still says, no strength is in me. I'm in pain. I'm out of breath, he says. As a result, the angel touches him a third time to strengthen him. So contrary again to the fictional portrayal of prayer and angels in some of these books that maybe you've read, the angels don't need our help. Okay? If anyone needs help, it's we who need the help of angels. It's the other way around. In fact, anyone who says that an angel spoke to him and he had a great conversation with him, I often question that. Usually they're portrayed as, well, we're, we're sitting in the chair and we're just having a good conversation with the angel. Or, you know, we've talked about the, I forget the kid's name, whatever, that supposedly went to heaven and wrote a book about it. Uh, you know, he's sitting in Jesus' lap or something, you know, something crazy like that. Every single time in Scripture when any celestial confrontation occurs between a man and an angelic being or even Christ himself, they're all scared to death. They're putting their head to the ground. They're afraid to even look at this holy, majestic, glorious being. They have no strength. They're in pain and want to die. Don't tell me I had a comfortable reclining conversation with an angel. It just doesn't happen, folks. In fact, a number of commentators that I read this week on this passage said, we all should take great comfort and encouragement from this to know that we can sit in our recliner chair and read this text, realizing how much suffering Daniel underwent to give it to us, and how much suffering and pain other prophets underwent in order that we might read God's holy word. We can read it comfortably, at least to some extent, because someone else was uncomfortable being in the presence of the Holy. Nevertheless, the angel did come in response to Daniel's prayer, and he came to strengthen him. He came to give him understanding. He came to encourage him, even though it's frightening, even though it's scary what he's been sharing with him. But there's nothing in the text that suggests in any way that Daniel's need to strengthen the angels. I shared with you a few, a few weeks ago uh, from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 37, that after God revealed his will to Ezekiel, what he was going to accomplish for the sake of Israel to multiply them again after they had been wiped out in many ways and only a remnant remained, he told Ezekiel the prophet that he would let the house of Israel ask him to do this for him, for them to increase the people like a flock. So in other words, he says, here's my will, here's what I want to do, and I'm going to let you ask for this very thing. I want you to pray for this. I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it through the instrument of your prayers. 
Indeed, God does utilize our prayers and ordinarily carries out his will through our prayers. But mind you, I'm going to say this a couple times and somewhat emphatically, God does not need your prayers. That might sound anathema to some of you. God does not need your prayers. God does not need your work. God doesn't need anything from you. Nothing. We are the ones who need prayer in order that we might be strengthened. We are the ones who have the privilege of joining God in His work through prayer, but God does not need our prayers, nor do His angels need any prayers from us, which is why whenever we teach anything about prayer, we never say, and here's how you pray for angels. We pray for men. We pray for men who are alive here and now. We don't even pray for the people who have passed. They're in a different realm from us. There's nothing we can do for them. We only pray for those who are here and now and even for the ones who are to come who will be in the flesh and share in the same sufferings and trials that we share in. But we are not praying for those who are in a holy place. It seems that the primary purpose of this angelic visit is to encourage Daniel to know that though God's people feel helpless and discouraged at many times, they're not alone and that God is at work on our behalf. God is doing things behind the scenes that we can't see, that even these demonic realms that are fighting against us at every turn, God is doing something to them as well. But all of this is according to God's predetermined plan. And that's why God has continued to give him the layout of what's going to happen over the next number of hundreds of years. If the prince of Persia is having the best of them right now, it's because God wants that. That's God's will. If the Prince of Greece is going to have it on them later on, it's also predetermined according to God's will. There's not a single thing that any of these princes can do apart from his will. So we have to understand that God's will is not thwarted in any way because we're lacking in prayer. Just know that from the beginning. God's will is not dependent upon your prayers. You could completely fail in every possible way and not pray for the next 10 years and God will still accomplish everything He set out to do for the foundations of the world. There's not a single thing that you can do to stymie His will. But on the other hand, I'd say it this way, there's not a single thing that you could do in your prayer life to advance His will either. Think about that. God's will is not dependent upon you, upon me, in our prayers. I mean, it sounds like I'm, I'm telling you that you don't need to pray. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, yes, you need to pray. But God doesn't need your prayers. There is a difference. It's a very clear difference in Scripture. Remember, God owns the cattle of a thousand hills, right? Does He need our money? No. God created the universe without us. Does He need our counsel and our help to keep it going? No. He's all-wise. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He doesn't need us for anything. Nevertheless, He likes to use us as His stewards. He likes to work through our prayers. And so He calls us to pray so that we can share with Him in the glory of seeing our prayers answered. In the same way, He likes to lead people to Christ through our witness. Through our testimony, through our sharing God's Word with others. Does He need it though? No, God can save anybody in any, any moment. Change His heart like the river of water anytime He wants to. He doesn't need us to do it. So yes, you can stop praying altogether. You can stop witnessing altogether. And yes, glory to God, He will still do everything He said He's going to. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. God can save the most hardened sinner in a moment. He can build up his church in every way, whether you come to church or not next Sunday. Whether you choose to use your gifts or not. Whether you choose to engage with your brothers and sisters of Christ in love or not. He will still accomplish everything he said he would do. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. If I remember correctly, Tyrone Church was without a pastor for what, almost two years before I came. Church still went on. Does the church need me? No. You want to get rid of me tomorrow? Go for it. It doesn't need me. God doesn't need me. 
Maybe we should say that to ourselves more often. God doesn't need me. But praise God, He wants to use me. He likes to use weak people. Why? To show that this power comes not from us, but from Him, these jars of clay. There's power residing within us. He calls us to prayer to tap into this surpassing, glorious power from which He will accomplish His will. Now, if you don't, well, you're someone else. Simple as that. But then you miss out on the blessing. Which is the very reason why the saints have often prayed simply because they want to be used. They want to share in the glory of God and, and yet at the same time know that just because they all pray and pray hard and pray long and pray faithfully, still it's not going to make God move His hand any quicker than He would otherwise. Otherwise, we wouldn't have prayers in Scripture like the one we sang in the song, How Long, O Lord? Why would we pray that if every time we pray, God gave us everything we asked for? Why would He not relieve our suffering immediately? Why would He not get rid of all the evil people immediately? Why would He not take out all the demons? Because if we gather together, we just worked on it really hard, we can make this happen. Christ comes today. All we got to do, we should just get on the cell phone call every Christian around the world and we'll fix this tomorrow. Because it's up to us, right? No. The whole purpose of this book is to remind us, as well as to remind Daniel and his own generation, that God has a plan, he knows what he's doing, and part of that plan does in fact include suffering. It does include opposition, and does include trials and temptation. And yet he still calls us to prayer in times such as this. Unlike some of these Christian fiction stories, good does not triumph over evil in the here and now. Not everything ends with, and they lived happily ever after. There's actually quite a bit of pain, quite a bit of suffering, quite a bit of confusion, quite a bit of moaning and mourning and crying this side of heaven because we're waiting for God to do it according to his own time, his will, as we plead to him, Lord, do as you promised. When will it happen, though? We don't know. He's not given us all the details. It's the same today for the church around the world. God is not going to put an end to all Christian suffering and persecution tomorrow in North Korea, no matter how much we pray for it. More suffering in North Korea than anywhere else in the world. Or Somalia, or Nigeria, or any of those other places in which our brothers and sisters in Christ are persecuted on a daily basis. We can gather prayer groups, but that doesn't mean that he's going to stop it tomorrow. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God doesn't work through our prayers for his deliverance, though. He chooses to work through our prayers. For his I'm going to keep going back and forth with this. I'm confusing you to death. Because clearly God worked through the prayers of his disciples to release Peter from prison. Did he not? Did he not also, through the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.19, say, Paul said that, I will be delivered from this through your prayers. And yet he also says, but I'm not sure whether I'm supposed to live or die. I think I want to live to help you guys, but it's okay dying too. He says, but if it happens, it's going to happen through your prayers. So again, the instrumentality is the norm through which God works, but he doesn't need to work through it. That's, I just want to make sure we get this. He doesn't have to do it through our prayers, but yet he chooses to so if we consider from the opposite angle, but historically, if you know much about Scottish history, English history, uh, Mary Queen of Scots was once reputed to have said that she feared the prayers of John Knox more than she feared an invading army. Now that's, but if, if, if our prayers don't move God's hand, then how could she say that? Because God moves his people to pray. We don't move God. He moves us to pray. And the very fact that John Knox is praying is not because he thinks he's so strong, but because he knows he's weak. And it's his weakness that drives him to prayer. It's his helplessness that calls upon God's help. Again, it's the surpassing power that comes into these jars of clay. So how then are we supposed to apply this text today? Certainly we ought to pray when we feel weak and helpless and in the midst of trials and temptations ourselves. 
and we ought to feel the need to pray when we're distressed by the lawless deeds that we see all around us. It reminds me of that passage in Lot. He was deeply distressed by the lawlessness he saw all around him in Sodom and Gomorrah. We should be praying in the same way. But we should also pray in light of the promises of God for Christ's kingdom to come. Here's the difference. We are not in the same place as Daniel. Daniel was told specifically what's going to happen over the next number of years. I said, you're going to get it next week. I'm going to tell you. He's going to tell you everything's going to happen. In a crazy, minute way, he's going to tell us. And in the midst of that, he's telling Daniel, there's going to be many years of suffering under the hands of the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, all before the coming of Christ. But now, the difference is Christ has come. We're on the other end of Daniel's prophecies, at least. Not quite at the end of everything in Revelation, but certainly at the end of Daniel. Even though Daniel's telling us some things that are much farther in the future, but, but now that Christ has come, from what we read in the New Testament, the gospel is advancing throughout the world. It's bearing fruit and prospering on a daily basis. We know that to be true. And so Paul says, we cease not to pray because of this. We know this is what God is doing even though we're suffering, even though we undergo persecution, at the same time, the gospel is advancing. So again, we can't force God's hand through our prayer, but God's hand does move us to pray, particularly for his kingdom, for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're told explicitly to pray this way. And so th there's a, a man from the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, I think many of you have heard his name before, he wrote on this topic, he had been studying this for a number of years, and he wrote a treatise that was entitled A Call to United Extraordinary Prayer, a Humble Attempt, he says. Showing how the many prophecies regarding the restoration of Israel and Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and all these others showed the advancement of the church being carried on through the prayers of God's people. That it happened, it will happen through their he said this, when God has something very great to accomplish for his church, it is his will that there should precede it the extraordinary prayers of his people. That first God moves his people to pray, and then God brings forth revival. So again, he doesn't need you to pray, but this is the way he chooses to work. He first moves your hand. You don't move his. He moves your hand, he moves your heart to pray, and then as a result, something good often comes from it. Even though his book, uh, strangely enough, didn't have very much of a circulation in the 1740s, very few people read it. No one even knew that he'd written it. Uh, but about 40 years later, there were some Baptist leaders in England who had republished it and began to urge churches in England to meet on the first Monday of each month to pray for revival. And within a period of about five to 10 years, revival broke out, strangely enough. And the modern missionary movement began as a result of that. William Carey was the first one. All of a sudden he felt a burden to go preach the gospel to the Indians, meaning India. And no one ever felt that before. All of a sudden he was deeply burdened to go and preach the gospel to India. And then all of a sudden other people began to be burdened by the same thing, that they wanted to preach the gospel all across the world. And it can be pointed back to the time where these people are reading a book by Jonathan Edwards that no one had read about the need to pray. And that God likes to work through prayer to begin these types of movements. And we find the same thing was happening in this neck of the woods, in the state that I came from, Connecticut, which hardly anybody prayed there. But at the time, in Connecticut, there were congregational churches throughout the state that began to have a monthly prayer meeting, encouraging each other to pray, about two-thirds of the churches in that region began to have a concert of prayer. And a number of revivals began to break out through the instrumentality of, of their prayers. What started that latter move, just some of the local pastors were depressed, I guess you could say, for the lack of a better term. They were oppressed, depressed by a decline of religion in the land. And so they agreed to pray once a month for the special purpose of asking for God to pour out his spirit once again upon his people for an increase in religious exercise. In other words, that God's people would be more devoted. They would want to seek God 
And so they began to pray that regularly together. Each of their churches began to have prayer meetings to do that. And eventually, again, there seemed to be much movement amongst God's people. So here's my question. Are you not depressed by what you're seeing? In fact, I almost went, are you not oppressed by what you've seen and read? On a regular basis in our country, it just seems, it just seems like the country is going to hell in a handbasket awful quick. It just seems like it's rapidly changing and going in the wrong direction. I'm not talking politics, I'm just talking in general. It just seems like more and more lawlessness is the norm, foolishness is the norm in our country. Evil's now considered good, good's now considered evil. That's normal for us now. You know, I sense that the church has just gotten weaker and weaker and been pushed to the sidelines and no one even seems to care whatsoever what the church does or says. It's certainly been diluted by so many liberal theologies and other crazy social theologies. They've lost sight of who Christ is. The younger generations, I'd almost say wholeheartedly, despise the church. The name of Christ is blasphemed in our generation. That seems to be the norm. If Jesus' name is even mentioned in the public square anymore, when was the last time you heard the name Jesus mentioned in public or on a newscast? It doesn't happen very often. The church itself just seems to be so weak. Church members seem to be indifferent to it, maybe distracted, maybe full of sin themselves. The question is, what can we do about it? By the way, I'm, I'm not employed by Fox News. I just want to tell you that from the very beginning. My job is not to make you angry. My job is not to make you bitter. My job is not to have you return to the nostalgia of yesteryear and say, oh, how great it used to be compared to what it is now. And I'm glad I'm leaving this earth before it all goes to hell. That's not my job. Nor is my job to see God's people rise up and fight. We're not called to fight the liberals. We're not called to fight the commies the immigrants, or any other group that you might be afraid of. That's not my job. I'm not, I'm not a newscaster who's just trying to rile you up. My desire, instead, is to see God's people get back on their knees. To wrestle against the forces that we're called to wrestle against, those spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. Asking God, pleading with God, Mourning with God, asking Him to destroy the kingdom of sin and Satan, to advance the gospel of Christ in our land once again, to purge the church of all of this sin and corruption and confusion, and simply to pour out His Spirit upon His people. So go home and think about that. Now, the, the elders have agreed to call a monthly prayer meeting. Praise God. As a start, for us to gather together and to do the same thing Daniel's doing. Lord, how long? When will you bring forth your glory, the glory of Christ, the glory of His church? How do we pray for these things? Now, if you've been burdened by all the stuff I've just mentioned, um, we're going to have a, a prayer meeting next Sunday night at 6 p.m. If you've been burdened, I want you to come. If you haven't been burdened, I definitely want you to come. If you have no desire for the things of God, it's almost mandatory that you have to come. Because that's the whole purpose of why we're gathered. Because I think all of us have been distracted to some extent. All of us have been depressed to some extent. All of us have been here we are, but weak. Uh, there's no particular um, day of the month yet, um, but I'm hoping we'll, we'll stick to one day of the month, one day of the month each month to do this. Until God does something, 
extraordinary. Or until our voices, we've lost our voice altogether. How about that? That's my hope. That's my prayer. Uh, you'll notice that everything that I've, I've been trying to do lately with the devotions and everything else is trying to get go to how do we how do we turn this back into prayer? So if you have never been to a prayer meeting before and you're not good at praying, <clears throat> you've never prayed publicly, great. This is the type of prayer meeting for you. The goal of this is to equip you, to give you resources and encouragement to know that every person can pray. And we're not going to just be here when one person's going to pray for an hour and everybody else is just going to quietly huddle in the corner afraid. Uh, but rather to give you everything you would need to be able to participate in this. I hope I'm not asking too much for once a month. If I am asking too much, then, then we definitely need more prayer. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us in our weakness. Lord, give us an undivided heart that loves you, that hates sin, that loves your kingdom and that wants to see it continue to grow, that gets excited when people come to faith in Jesus Christ, that mourns over the weakness and the inconsistency, the double-mindedness that we have. Lord, that, that just feels helpless. Help us to change anything in this world. We are not world changers, Lord. We can't even change our own hearts. So we ask, Lord, that through this meager attempt coming together to try and and to call down power from heaven, fire from heaven, Lord, we pray that you would bless our attempts, that you would choose to work through our prayers, and that your holy will would be done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Once you stand with me, let's sing together. Hold church arise.